So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed, plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Happy first official 2021 from the ladies of First Bite. Y'all, Erin and I are back together for our first episode of the year. Um, Woman, gotta say, I've missed you. It's already 
pin and eventual year in the two and a half weeks that we're into it. Uh, real quick, before we get going today, Aaron and I thought it would be fun to talk about our respective themes and vision boards for that we created for 2021. Kind of like um, where everybody's being each other's accountability partners. Uh, on our end, Hack Dawson came up with the family motto. This is the second or third year that we've done it. And honestly, Goose and his sweet little wise second grade self, he coined, coined our family motto for the year. So drum roll. And he called it never give up, which is kind of perfect and deeply personal for me because um, as many of y'all know, for the last two years, I've been working on a book called Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding Disorders. And this has been very much a labor of love. And y'all, it just came back from its second round of peer reviews. So huge thank you to Aaron for contributing to the book and being the first peer review. And to my favorite pediatrician, Dr. Tessa, for doing the second round of peer reviews. And Y'all, it's been like this little engine that could. And um, Goose said, Mommy, don't give up. We can finish the book. Um, well, Mommy flopped at homeschooling in 2020. And we we struggled through all the craziness. And yeah, so huge heartfelt thank you to my sweet little Goose Danger Dawson for coming up with the family motto of never giving up. Now, if I can just carry that over to um, shoe tying, piano lessons, and um, convincing Sir Theodore to stay in his bed, then we'll be fine. So yay. Okay, now you you did a vision board. So mm -hmm. you, wait, you did a vision board with, was it Claire? Mm-hmm. Yes. I made Claire and, do and a vision board with me. <laughs> During a Bills game that they won. And I remember mm -hmm. this because mm -hmm. I was excited that I knew Bills were football. I, I'm proud of you. Claire didn't thought they were college. So we're we're getting there you'll convert us or at least educate us <laughs> okay no, I like so to make a vision board um and I like to pick a word but I picked two words this year okay I couldn't just pick one so I picked um authenticity and balance <laughs> I know I say how I say balance but that's yes that a babe that a authenticity and balance. I, I love that. Yes. Okay. So y'all message us, shoot us a message. Tell us what y'all's family mottos and vision board words were, or if you had vision boards that were pictures. I honestly thought when you guys were cutting up the newspapers that it was like, like just pictures. I didn't realize that there was words included in a vision board. You can board. do whatever you want. You can write it. You can put pictures. I put a, I put a, a nice attractive man on my vision board. <laughs> So <laughs> bring on 2021, baby. <laughs> uh, I should put, I, we should make one and add a third dog. We need a puppy. Mm. Manifesting at its finest. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So um, today, y'all, we're going to work through clinical case studies. And this is one of our favorite activities to do. Mm -hmm. um, we genuinely love dissecting new cases, HIPAA compliantly, obviously, but dissecting new cases, figuring out um, what we can't see 
and, and even helping. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had, um, colleagues message or email. And I mean, we're, we don't charge for that because it's, it's just what we do. We're just there to help. Right. So this is a continuation of, um, all those clinical case studies because we learn best when we learn from each other and mm-hmm. include, um, those corners of our evidence-based triangles. Well, okay. and you're only, you know, I don't have all the answers, obviously, but I'm very lucky to have our village, as we call it, and we have people everywhere where if I'm really stuck on something, like you said, HIPAA compliantly, I can reach out to a peer and say, I know that you treat a lot of these kiddos, or I know that you see more of this, like I need help. And the A, there's, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's wonderful. And I think, you know, it you don't need to have all the answers. It It's just helpful to know that you'll find that, you know, you'll seek the answers. Mm-hmm. I have a kiddo that we're not talking about today, but I just picked up and this kiddo is a mystery. It's, they're a pu- like a puzzle. And I'm like, I don't have the answer right now, but we're going to figure it out. One of the biggie factors that I have, um, I've circled around to is when we're seeking out the guidance in our village, and you and I have talked about this, your village can't just be SLPs. Mm-hmm. Like we have to engage our stakeholders that have different professional acronyms because they have different training. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, I mean, I, <laughs> May or may not pester my favorite allergist periodically, but mm-hmm. uh, hint, hint. But um, I do have to email him back. But having those people to say, "I got this case. I just need to run it by you really quickly." That's yeah, that's key. So yes, okay, can, yeah, you can make people be your mentors. I mean, you just got to be persistent. <laughs> I I just read a quote, and Lord Almighty, I don't remember where it is. Um, oh, it might've been on it. No, it was on, um, LinkedIn and they were defining the difference between, um, mentorship and sponsorship. And it was profound. It said a mentor is a person that will inspire you while you're in the same room. And sponsorship is the mentor who talks, um, kindly and builds you up after you've left the room. And I thought that was mm. profound. How amazing is that to find a mentor who then builds you up when you're not even around? So life goals, add, add that to, to life goals. Okay. All right. So put that on, put that on the boards, right? Never give up at authenticity, um, balance. I can't not say it right now. And mentorship and sponsorship. Huzzah. Okay. All right. So our first case is one of your little case studies, but the similarities here between all the, it, it's transcendent. It's, this may be one of your clinical case studies, but this will hit and impact all of us. So you have a little one who is having PFD plateaus, so pediatric feeding disorder plateaus and regressions that are, well, when we wrote this, they were congruent with with an as of yet undiagnosed but highly suspected genetic condition. So for everybody in the room, you know something ain't right. 
made the referral that something's not right. And that little one is just stuck. And no matter what you're doing, you can't get it through. So Aaron, talk to me about the process and let's pick it apart and rebuild it. Um, so I picked up this kiddo, um, actually came in for like speech and language. Um, and I have really great coworkers who don't do feeding, but because we have provided education, they're very good at, um, in their case history questions, kind of picking up for red flags for referrals. So she was referred to me and, um, to say the eval was not a lot, but, uh, this kiddo had been missed. Like very, there were all the signs and older than a year and a half, um, signs of severe reflux, never been on medication, never seen a GI. The only specialist that this child saw was pediatrician and she had an EI. Um, that was it. And we only drank milk pretty much. We would try some solids like mashed potatoes. We would accept a little bit of them, but not, um, not more than a couple bites. Um, we had a lot, our gait was very off and we, we fell a lot running into walls, um, just falling a lot of, um, difficulties with balance. Very, I'm sorry, uh, I can't. It's the A. It's from from Rochester. It's um <laughs> and difficulties with like regulation, just co- like, you know, not very we couldn't attend very well. We would make eye contact, but we were just constantly seemed to be off. And I evaled and I don't know why, but I, you know, I looked at my coworker who had seen her for language, I said, I think she has rat syndrome. And she was like, you know, you know, what do you mean? What is that? And we talked a little bit about it. Um, but a lot of like a mouthing with her hands and pulling her hair and mouthing her hair. Um, I had concerns for her. So in this eval, there were about six or seven specialists I wanted to send her to. But as we know, you cannot send them to seven specialists at once. That is overwhelming. But let me tell you, this mama was fighting for her kid because, and I, we work with some wonderful EIs. We work with some EIs that, um, for lack of a better way to phrase it, don't, um, push for things that are necessary as much as we would like them to. And so a genetic, uh, there was a history of genetic syndromes in the family and there was supposed to have been a referral sent to genetics, but the EI, as she told mom forgot. Um, so I called because I thought if yes, you can, you know, if you don't have a diagnosis, you treat what you see and you know, and you work with family for what is functional. But what I was seeing was regression from skills that she had had before, as mom described, like she was, she was saying a couple words, 
She was eating more. Um, there were a lot of things that pointed to this is, this is a diagnosis that we need to get because it can completely alter our plan of care. Um, and so we got her to genetics. We got her to GI because we had severe constipation and re severe reflux to the point of emesis when we were sleeping. Um, and who else did I send her to? She was seeing ENT. Um, but we, it took, it, it didn't take as long as I thought within a, a couple months, you know, within a couple weeks, she got to genetics and they're phenomenal here. Um, and they kind of talked to mom and had similar suspicions that I did. But what I noticed even during the time period that we were waiting is she was still having more regressions. Like she would take some, um, solids for me. And then as time passed, she would gag at this, at the sight of them. Um, which is very frustrating because at that point I didn't really know, what to do because there were so many moving parts and GI said that they didn't know why she was needing. They said she did have reflux and she did have constipation, but they had no idea why she wasn't eating. To me, if you're throwing up all the time, you might not want to engage in the when, I, when yeah. I'm nauseous, mm -hmm. not really trying to put food down my mouth, but teach their own. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and this mama is a, she's, <laughs> she's a fighter. She, she, she'd get a response from someone and she'd be like, Oh, I'm texting Aaron. I know Aaron's not going to like this. <laughs> um, but it was, it, it, it's been frustrating because like you're waiting for a diagnosis and you're like, you know, how do I, a couple of thoughts. Here in South Carolina, the early interventionist, they serve as uh, the service coordinator on the IFSP team, okay? So it is their responsibility to orchestrate uh, OTPT speech to get the referrals in place, but they also are tasked under our baby net, which is our birth to three um, statewide early intervention program, to get the referral going to the geneticist, okay? And it's actually completely covered and paid for um, by the state early intervention system. Each state will have their own unique interpretation. Uh, some of our more progressive states, which are embracing uh, best practice um, a little bit more quickly than our own, the uh, service coordinator is actually a skilled OTPT, SLP, or an actual teacher. In South Carolina, early interventionists do not have to have a degree in early childhood education or special education. They could have backgrounds in um, oh, anthropology, sociology, social work, which brings a lot to the table. But um, sometimes if they do not have, if those individuals do not have unique training in holistic allied health approach to um, early intervention, they won't see what they won't see because they can't. That's no fault of their own. They just, they just haven't had the experience or the exposure. Now, another biggie here is that uh, pediatricians are generalist. All right, y'all. Pediatricians uh, should know 
a little about a lot when it comes to getting referrals to different specialists. And not all pediatricians adhere to the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for when they're supposed to administer the ASQs. The ASQs is a developmental screen that, um, Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's three months, six months, nine, 12, 18. Mm -hmm. um, And uh, embedded within that ASQ are, are these children reaching their developmental norms? Not all pediatricians utilize those, even though they're supposed to. It's a guideline. It's best practice, but alas, not necessarily, right? Mm -hmm. And those developmental screens are put in place to capture developmental delays and red flags for plateaus like this, okay? Now, one um, recommendation that I highly recommend everybody check out it's called rettsyndrome.org, R-E-T-T syndrome.org. This website has a, it does a fantastic job of collaborating uh, interprofessionally with uh, different members of the allied health and the medical team uh, to educate everybody on what a diagnosis and the signs and symptoms of Rett syndrome look like. Erin, can you explain what what you picked up that made you think that it potentially could be this? Well, one, and one thing I forgot to mention was that a lot of people said to this family that they suspected autism, which is common um, for it to get misdiagnosed as autism because of that regression. Um, but I knew, I was like, this child, this is not autism. Um, and so the regression was the first thing. And I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most children with rat syndrome are appear typical and then they start to regress and it can be anywhere from, I think like six months to three years. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a pretty large range of time when you can start to see regression of skills. Um, The, like a lot of mouthing, that was a big sign for me. She constantly had her hands in her mouth and would like pull her hair and mouth on her hair. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of drooling. They, um. Rhythmic hand gestures. mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's a very, um, the hand gestures are very, it, it looks like they could be visually stimming or. They're shaking them back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rett syndrome is more likely to occur in little girls than it is mm-hmm. in little boys. And uh, it's one of those conditions where often these individuals, um, if a little boy is a carrier for it, they typically succumb to the disease in utero. And mm-hmm. they're not um, carried to term. Um, so um, successfully, just... Mm-hmm. Um, Yep. Well, um, and, and her gait, like a lot of mm-hmm. kiddos with rat syndrome, not all of them. I mean, I have a kiddo with rat syndrome on my caseload right now. Um, another one that is very, very, very high functioning. Um, but a lo- it's very common for them to not be able to walk, um, to lose a lot of control of their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so hands are a thing to kind of, like you said, um, watch out for, but the fact that we were falling a lot and losing our balance, 
Um, and the fact that we, um, like I said, we had these skills, we had some words, we were doing better, and then we started to regress. Um, very common because we're low tone to have issues with GI reflux, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there and were. Low, mm-hmm. I was just gonna say low tone. We use that term, but you have to fully grasp that low tone permeates all aspects yeah, of their entire being. So sitting up for proper PO intake, having, um, uh, it, it loosens, I'm not sure loosens is the right word, but it compromises the integrity of the LES and UES, which is why when the individual lays down, they're more likely to have severe, um, GERD to the level of LPR and emesis. And Mm -hmm. And it's less likely, I mean, you're looking at delayed GI emptying, delayed GI motility, which the longer it sits in your stomach, the more likely it is to come up. But that tone impacts how well they can contract to have a bowel movement to actually move the stool through. So there's all of those additional factors that these little ones have to fight through and overcome. Mm -hmm. And it, and I think it, it can be very frustrating and thankful, which is why I had a conversation with someone, um, a while back and they were like, well, why does it matter? Like, why does the diagnosis matter? It mm-hmm. matters very significantly. And especially with a genetic syndrome, I've been having these conversations a lot recently that there are so many things that don't seem connected until mm-hmm. there is that diagnosis. And it allows you to, to then prepare for the other things. If a child has a rest syndrome diagnosis, you're going to want to get them to cardiology. You're going to want to get them to neuro. You're going to want to get them ahead of the game. And to be honest, this child is starting to show signs and symptoms of possibly having seizures. Um, Which is another another key component of that diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But, but for a lot of... And, not, you know, every physician is different. Every physician treats, um, different patient populations. But when you have that, that label, it can make things a little bit easier because some people don't understand like a neurogenic, like swallowing issue. I mean, or a neurogenic feet, like that impacts so many, so much of their entire body. If you're wondering why they're not eating well, there's so many factors. Um, the anatomy may look good, but that doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that that they're going to be able to consume adequate PO and safely and effectively. Um, I also needed to get this child to a swallow study because there were signs and symptoms of aspiration, which is and this is something that I like. I in my past job did a ton of swallow studies. And it is, it is hard because sometimes you don't have all the information you need. We've talked about this, like communicating with the SLP that does the swallow study. Um, sometimes it's just, it's difficult to complete an accurate study because of the patient refusing or all these other factors, but, um, it can be frustrating even when you communicate to see reports and not have all the information you want. Because for a child with a, a genetic syndrome like this, if they aspirate 
I totally understand that you want to put them on a safer diet, but if they are very low tone and they are weak, and that may be a problem for them to get adequate hydration if you put them on a thickened liquid. And some of our kiddos can tolerate aspiration. So that I want to encourage people like that swallow study is a piece of information. It is not always the be all end all. And you can have conversations with other physicians about what they think is best risk assessment wise um, for this child. Um, because that, that has been frustrating because now we're on thick and liquids, but now we don't take as much because we have to work harder. And you worry about also hydration with a lot of these kiddos. Okay. So big picture with this diagnosis, unfortunately, a lot of our little ones that have Rett syndrome do end up needing a Yes. Okay. So I say, unfortunately, but I really truthfully don't think that's the right word to go with right there. We want our patients, we want our babies healthy. We want them growing. Fed is fed is fed is fed. And our goal is to make feeding joyful for all members involved, parents, caregivers, and the patient right? And for some of these individuals, we have to be the one that starts the conversation for alternate means. So that way the individual is adequately nourished to grow, to meet their optimal developmental outcomes. And then a family gets to enjoy a quality feed over a quantity. They get to sit down and enjoy a meal together, whatever that meal ends up looking like, right? Mm -hmm. So my takeaways from the case are that you need to be able to lean in and request the referrals when you're seeing something, don't sit back. Because if Aaron hadn't leaned in and said, look, I'm really concerned. We need to get to a geneticist. We need to get the ball rolling on this, this, and this. I mean, it, in a matter of weeks, she went from voicing that concern to now we see new onset signs, symptoms of seizure activity. And because we have a diagnosis that is known for having seizure disorders, it typically means the um, allied health or rehab team is going to make those referrals that much quicker, right? Mm -hmm. And and get that child the help that they need. So. Mm -hmm. Takeaway, be the squeaky wheel. When you see a plateau, do not associate a plateau and therapeutic skill set, meaning that you're not doing a good job. We have to take that notion and chuck it. You are yeah. doing a stellar job. It could just be the nature of the little one's disorder or disease, but you're so in tune with it, you're able to pick up on that to, to make that next step to help well and that was really frustrating because I remember they would go to other specialists and the specialists would be like, well, is she seeing a feeding therapist? And mm -hmm. you're like, I'm not a magician. Like this child is telling me they do not want this food near their mouth. And I'm going to honor that. And I'm going to help communicate that to the other physicians as to what I'm seeing and that there's a problem. And, but that was like, it, 
kind of hurts your ego a little bit for a while when they're like, well, what about her feeding therapist? And you're like, I'm doing everything I can. This is above my pay grade right now as to what's going on. <laughs> this, is, this is multi-system components. This is mm-hmm. not just put the food in the mouth to swallow. There's a lot more to this picture. Yes. Yes. But you have, I mean, right. I like I had to work with mom and, you know, discuss, um, you know, what I was seeing and be open and honest with her because we weren't progressing. So, you know, it, it can be frustrating, but I think I, I was able to build a strong relationship, especially because I was that first person that really, that they saw that, you know, made all those referrals and kind of advocated, <coughs> excuse me, sorry for That's- what they needed. And I like being that person, but it did get to a point where I was like, I need help. And so we eventually, with that diagnosis, could get her into a special needs pediatrician. Um, mm-hmm. And that was a huge weight lifted off my shoulders because I couldn't, I couldn't do all of that. Mm-hmm. But yet that's why, ah, that's why there's a difference between a general pediatrician and a specialized special education, special needs based pediatrician that works at larger facilities like that. Because, yeah. I mean, the pediatrician that um, Goose needed, I mean, that's not the pediatrician that some of my complex pediatrician or some of my right. complex patients need. Actually, right. my pediatrician is, but that's just because I like freaking love her and like I begged her to take us on, even though that's. Preemie children, all the things. But example. Okay, wait. We have two more cases to get through. We only have 30 minutes, woman. <laughs> uh, we'll do. The, that was a longer one. <laughs> that was that was a big one. Yes. Okay. Also, um, please bear in mind that uh, genetic testing is one of those situations where not all families are open to genetic testing right away. Yeah. If ever. And we have to respect our caregivers' um, uh, feelings and opinions on genetic testing. And if they're not open to genetic testing, then you may need to get them in with um, different specialists. Uh, and, and that's also a conversation where you need to follow up with um, the pediatrician. Because, yeah. I mean, truly a, a, a new diagnosis of this nature or of a nature similar will completely change the trajectory of your plan of care. So, okay. All right. So this is a good one. This is a good one. The next case that um, I think I might've just landed a perfect follow-up for in March. Um, Okay. So uh, let's walk through your little one who just had cardiac surgery due to underlying structural abnormalities that resulted in esophageal dysphagia, baby. Well, this one, and this is a, it's similar-ish to the first case in that um, there's a lot of waiting mm-hmm. because I picked up this kiddo, um, has a Down syndrome diagnosis. So very common. You're going to have cardiac um, deficits as well. And we 
were having trouble gaining weight, um, drinking pretty much from a bottle because it was a soft spout sippy cup. We drank it like a bottle. Um, on thick and liquids, we also have laryngomalacia, um, and we had moved, so we were establishing care here. So there were a lot of new uh, new members of the care team that they hadn't had before, and so we had kind of when I picked this child up, we were starting to discuss cardiac surgery because of the um, because of the deficits, because of having so much difficulty gaining weight, because of the size of the, um, ASD. And they had talked about doing cardiac surgery here, um, in the upstate, but after they tried to kind of, um, what, what do you call it? They, um, well, they went in and further assessed the hole. They realized that they could not complete that heart surgery here. So it was recommended that they go to MUSC um, in Charleston. Was it a, was it a PDA? Um, no, he had ASD. Okay. But um, the, it was they were going to do a – and you and I had talked about this. It's a newer surgery. They were going to essentially kind of – not a pad, but it's like a balloon almost that they put over the hole so that it can kind of like it inflate. Yeah. I forget exactly what it's called. It was really cool when they talked about it. Um, but they went in and realized that that wasn't going to work. And so they, um, had to do a complete like open heart surgery and that was a lot. Um, but it was important. So I, we knew that he was going to have the surgery backing up two months prior. And I, we had a, I had a discussion with family about how our goal right now, because he's going to have this surgery is to keep him healthy and to keep him like to just kind of work on skills with another child that wasn't going to have heart surgery. I might start to work on like test, like trialing a little bit of thinner liquid with new modalities to prep for a swallow study, because you're not Mm going to get better if you don't practice. But because we have a history of aspiration, I was not going to put at risk for any sort of, um, respiratory infections or any sort of illness because the goal right now was his heart. Um, Mm -hmm. so we worked a little bit on like some other modalities. We worked a little bit on, um, increasing texture of solids. Uh, but what was interesting is, I mean, it's very typical to see in a kiddo with Down syndrome to have that tongue protrusion. Um, but it was very strong. And what I would notice with like a thicker um, puree or more like a minced and moist as they talk about with itsy is that push his tongue out and you'd hear like a gulp. Like he was trying to get extra like pressure to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember one day, um, the cardiologist said something about something impacting feeding. And I was like, I don't, I called the cardiologist. He was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. 
um, there was just like some miscommunication about what I was like, is his, is the vagus nerve impacted? Like what's going on? And it turned out when they went in and did the heart surgery, they had to take the artery and kind of split it because it was wrapping around the esophagus to make it, it was tighter. Um, so it made sense why those thicker purees were difficult because it was harder to get that pressure in the pulley system of our swallow to pull it through the esophagus to create that peristaltic wave. And then, so that was, it, things made more sense. Um, and it was pretty, it was amazing because after heart surgery, like, you know, there were some weeks to heal and make sure everything was okay, go through Lasix. But after heart surgery, like we were gaining weight incredibly quickly. We were starting, I like noticed right away a vertical chew motion that I had never seen before um, by him. Um, he has since begun to start crawling. Um, we have- it's his body's like, keep recovering. Mm-hmm. And mom and I talked yeah. to him, he goes, I'm seeing all these things. And I said, his heart's not working as hard anymore. Up until this point, he was in survival mode. So all these mm-hmm. other skills that we were working on weren't, and, and that can be frustrating as a feeding therapist because you're like, I can't do like he, until this, this gets healed. And until we go through surgery, like there's not, I can work on things. Absolutely. Like I can work on skills. I can work on, um, like kind of trialing those new modalities and flavors and things like that. But like you, but you have to realize sometimes like there's bigger than us and, and his heart was the most important thing. Um, and it's amazing what happens when you, when that heals. Yep. So, so this is esophageal dysphagia, the recognition of how esophageal dysphagia manifests as oral or oropharyngeal mm-hmm. dysphagia is really just starting to, for lack of a better phrase, make it mainstream, right? Right. Like scholarly researchers, um, it's been known that structural metorical deficits in the esophagus can present as um, an oral stage dysphagia upstream. But that's where... That's where I feel like we have this unique ability to be the bridge between research to practice because we like we can share that, right? Mm-hmm. And and esophageal dysphagia, there's there's other this can be brought on by cardiac, by okay, so structural dysphagia um of the esophagus. You can have strictures from acid reflux, you could have a ring from inflammation, from allergies, eosinophilic esophagitis. You could have um, tracheoesophageal fistula. You could have um, um, aortic valve impingement, which is simply the aortic valve is pushing in on the esophagus and the esophagus can't swiftly, smoothly move the bolus through because part of the heart is is squishing it for like yeah. yeah very technical term squishing um but then you have um metorical deficits like echolasia um 
uh, tertiary contractions, involuntary spasms. And the little ones that were called to serve, they can't verbally explain to you what's happening, right? Like that's not in their wheelhouse to be able to say, I, I feel something right here. Sometimes we like see the globus sensation. Um, but as a, as a clinician, we have to pursue when we have one diagnosis such as Down syndrome, we have to understand that that overall global diagnosis tends to have comorbidities such as cardiac conditions, acid reflux, and then start putting it all together and pursuing what else could be going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a little one that had cardiac repair and then a couple weeks afterwards developed um, unilateral vocal fold paralysis with the left vocal fold open and was refusing thin liquids where previously prior to the heart surgery, that little one had a VSD prior to the heart surgery, they were able to bring their vocal folds to midline. They were able to adduct, but this one was stuck abducted. Did I get it right? Did I do it right? Adducted, abducted, God, anatomy was a really long time ago, but, and it was, it was, it was nerve damage from, um, the cardiac surgery. The vagus nerve had been compromised. Now, One biggie for me is if you have a kid that has a cardiac condition and you notice that over the course of PO trials, they start going, um, Aaron, help me here. When they go blue at toes and fingertips, cyanotic, is that it? Mm -hmm. When they go blue? Yes. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Um, That's, you really need to make sure that you're communicating well with the pediatrician uh, or with their, um, with their cardiologist, because that could be a deterioration in their heart. They could be um, having a hard time uh, from a cardiopulmonary perspective. And let's face it, a lot of our heart patients get sent home after an initial diagnosis just to gain weight and grow. And they don't get to follow up with the cardiologist the rate at which they should, but they see you and I on a weekly or biweekly basis versus the cardiologist like once a month, you know? Right. So make sure that if you're the little one that you're working with has a diagnosis like this, that you're staying in constant communication and letting them know any changes in baseline, because you could, you could save their life by having that continuity of care. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm trying to sweet talk a lovely lady who specializes in NICU um, congenital heart defects. Um, to come on and do an episode all about CHD. Oh, that's cool. I know. I'm excited. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> okay. All right. Was there anything else that we wanted to talk about with um, cardiac surgery as pertains to esophageal dysphagia? I don't think so. I mean, there's always more, but. Yeah. But do bear in mind that paralysis, paresis of vocal folds, complications. Um, oh, uh, every once in a while, and it's rare, but surgical complications um, due to intubation, they could have um, they could have um, damage um, to their airways as well when they go to get mm-hmm. intubated. They have damage to 
the vocal folds. Um, uh, I have a kiddo. I have a couple of kiddos on my caseload that have vocal nodules and or like vocal um, damage to their vocal folds from being in the NICU. Yeah. Yep. Especially when it's a stat intubation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm. Although, bless, I don't, I mean, I know I couldn't do a stat intubation, so I'm uh, in awe of those that can. So I'm glad that we're here yeah. to help on the other end. Yep. Okay. All right. So keeping on the theme of esophageal dysphagia, I have a case study to close this out. Um, okay. So this little guy, um, we got, he is, he is spitfire and vinegar. Um, I adore this kid. Um, he's eight years old. Um, our sweet friend, Leslie, um, who works at MUSC actually called me about this little kiddo and asked me to pick him up. Um, has a genetic condition and has been um, seen by the feeding clinic um, at MUSC um, and moved in from out of state, right? So they moved in from out of state, couldn't find um, a PFD clinician, um, started down at the feeding clinic. Different feeding clinics are structured um, so that they're inpatient intensive versus outpatient consultative, right? And the clinic at MUSC is outpatient consultative. So they touch base. They do an excellent job of collaboration with community-based therapists. And um, Leslie called me up and was like, hey, I got a kiddo. So I um, uh, picked up the kiddo. Um, and genetic condition predisposed to esophageal strictures um, with acid reflux. Um, Petite little thing for his age, not just because of um, limited PO intake, but just the, the nature of the condition, right? And um, anywho, um, when I pick him up, we are um, only drinking uh, Pediasure and um, have very, very limited to no pureed food trials, right? At, at eight. Um, and when you're drinking one of the commercial um, products, you can gain weight, but um, it's not always quality. the right weight. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's not always the right weight. Um, this is where I strongly encourage folks to request consultation with a registered dietitian as well as a CBC and a CMP. So CBC is your complete blood count and a CMP is the complete metabolic count um, panel. And the CMP will give you insight. Erin, you and I had this conversation about a kiddo that was pica, presenting with sinus mm -hmm. symptoms and pica, like when they're like grabbing all the things and putting them in their mouth and trying to lick and taste, that can yeah. be, um, yeah. So anyways, um, we do all that. But here's the catch. The severity of the esophageal strictures was such that the little one had to go back in for constant dilations which is, that's a procedure. You have to be sedated. They put you under and they were going in for balloon dilations every four weeks because they just kept coming back. Now, the little guy had oral pocketing and um, would only trial, um, I mean, like we were stuck on like um, vanilla white color yogurt, right? And, and, and the Pediasure. 
So over the course of time, got switched over from Pediasure to um, uh, um, fantastic Cape Farms um, product, and 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 I took three steps back, which sounds crazy, but I can't ask a little one to progress in bullish trials when physiologically downstream they're stuck you know um and that's okay so my recommendation was all right we need to get in touch with the gi and we need to find out what's going on with the stricture so um which this was a great way for the student that the graduate student again if you are not a clinical supervisor please consider being a clinical supervisor. If you're in the greater North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia area, email me. I need awesome clinical supervisors, but um, seriously, no, email me. But this was a great learning experience for the, for the student that I was working with on why we have to engage in interprofessional practice because GI shared, you know, that they were um, going to start doing Botox injections in the stricture. And guess what? it started staying open and didn't come back. And once that happened, it was game on. We could participate in advanced PO trials because he could structurally have a bolus pass through without causing that globus sensation. And while this was occurring, um, the student and I worked on language specifically like adjectives to describe feelings about food and um, how it felt going down. And for the first time in his little life, he was able to say, I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> shell, shell, I feel it. <laughs> like point to his little throat. And I mean, we like, we knew, we, we knew his globus. We knew where the stricture was, but like he could tell us like when, and sure enough, when he felt like he had another one, um, this time we were able to get back in with GI and, you know, they were able to like, um, I don't think touch up is the right word, but touch up is kind of like the word that I feel like you need to use here. Mm-hmm. And, and oh my gosh, we are now eating eggs. We like boiled eggs. We've now started adding in mashed potatoes. We've branched out from just, we're food chaining. I love me some Sherry Fraker in the food chain and um, it, we've added oregano, uh, oregano, basil, thyme, and umami, and he really likes the smell of the umami spices. So we've started adding in spices to uh, the the food so that there's color in there. And and yes, we are. He absolutely clearly presents still with um, uh some oral stage dysphagia. Like we do have to work on bolus control and mastication, but he's learning it. And I mean, the kiddo's food age is not congruent with an eight-year-old up until just recently, he was only accepting thin liquids. And, and now he's accepting and seeking out and getting interested in advanced viscosities, but he's doing amazing and watching just his, watching him develop a positive relationship with food 
has just been phenomenal. And it's been healthy for the whole family. Also, he's a little chunk monk now. Like he started like getting a little double chin, a mastate ring. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. I am so proud of him. But this was this was a team effort. And I could only challenge him to the point that he felt safe while we were addressing structurally the underlying components. And um, I, I'm excited. Um, next week, we're, we're doing boiled pasta. And uh, we're going to try like the lentil pasta. So it won't just be like white pasta, but we're trying like the different shaped lentil noodles and... Uh, that's I am I am excited because he's really into shakes. So this will be fantastic. Also, not gonna lie, little baby sister with her little thunder thighs, and she wants to get into whatever Big Brother is eating. That also helps. It's like positive peer pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. that there's that that's something to be celebrated as well. But this is I I, I got to tell you all, we really need to be collaborating and looking at. Uh, what's going on downstream and how letting the physical etiology being addressed and just making the experience positive while the child is healing, that really is key. Um, If you're looking for some great resources for therapy to use right then and there, I would highly recommend the um, Get Permission Approach by Marsha Dunklein food chaining with um, Sherry Fraker SOS approach with um, Dr. Kate Toomey. And wait, Annalisa just finished the Sophie, Sophie method. I don't know how to say that. Um, um, is it, it, she's got her Sophie certification, which is Dr. Aaron Ross's certification. That's getting added to my bucket list this year. Uh, so yeah, but that's that was a lot. We cut. Co- oh my goodness, we covered a significant amount of ground with um, esophaguses and hearts today. So, mm-hmm. any 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 other thoughts here? I don't think so. Okay. Hmm. Okay. If you live someplace rural, you can hardly say that word. No wonder Bear had a hard time with ours. Um, But if you live someplace that's farther away and you don't have access to a team right there immediately around you, this is where there are additional resources available for you and for the child. So your, your caregivers, I would recommend that they reach out to Feeding Matters because Feeding Matters can provide a one-to-one parent mentor for the caregiver. I say parent, but I mean, caregivers come in all shapes and forms, right? And excuse me, I would, to my knowledge, they do their best to try to match cases together. Some individuals get a PFD diagnosis very, very early. Some get them later. And so they try to match parent peers so that they can mentor based off of their personal experiences, right? Now, there are, um, I know that they have scholarships available so that if you live someplace rural and you don't have a strong team near you and it is not in your patient's family's budget to make a travel to like a major hospital, uh, 
they can apply for the scholarship because I, the, the takeaway from all three of these cases was the value of second and third opinions from professionals who had unique skill set, skill set, skill set, uh, insight, skill set. I can talk. It's fine. <laughs> but I would, I would reach out and apply for that and ask the questions. All right. Um, there are some pretty phenomenal uh, ongoing events coming up in March. No, not March. The end of April, Feeding Matters is having their annual convention uh, in March. Aaron and I are hosting another PFD seminar. And um, the Dysphagia Research Society is having their, which is a fantastic way to learn cutting edge, um, uh, like new research. They're doing it online this year. I think they were supposed to go to Puerto Rico, but instead of doing it in Puerto Rico, they're doing it virtually. So those are, just to name a few, those are some phenomenal resources that are available to you. And, you know, you can always message Aaron and I. We love to help with the case study. <laughs> so like, yay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's it. That's a lot. Whew. Okay. Big soapboxes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm, mm hmm. All right. Um, before we switch over to questions, uh, because <laughs> poor, poor Erin just moved into an apartment this weekend. Erin's a little tired, y'all, but she's got a, a killer apartment and Cola Kitty is thriving. <laughs> so, yeah, it's her kingdom. We just live in it. Uh, mm -hmm. You really do need to get the wall steps so that she can run around the walls. Okay, but before we switch over to questions, y'all, 2021 has had some major growth and exciting changes underway for First Bite. So to stay abreast of all the new comings, goings, and happenings, please be sure to check us out on at First Bite on Instagram. Uh, check out some sneak peeks of the book at Chasing the Swallow on Instagram and be sure to leave us a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. The reviews help us grow the First Bite family and continue to encourage all of us to, as Christine Dawson would say, to never give up. So from all of us here at First Bite, we wish you a continued fabulous 2021. Happy advocating, happy mentoring, and Thank y'all. And Erin, I'm going to switch this over to Q&A, lady. Hold on. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. 
Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.